Welcome, fellow anglers, to the Working Class Fishing Podcast, a place for all anglers, amateur or expert, to share their stories and learn about fishing. Join your hosts, John and Brian, each episode as they debunk the perceived inaccessibility to fishing, break down the barriers of any and all angling methods, and hear stories from other anglers and their own journeys with fishing. Now, let's get this show started. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Class Fishing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brian, and here is John with our sponsors. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the podcast. This episode of Working Class Fishing is brought to you by Troutlander Nets, exploration through innovation, Maxon Outfitters, made by anglers for people that fish, lid rig, use your head, snip different, and Morris Flycoat, eating big. Well, today is a very special day for myself uh, in particular because, number one, it's the first time I've recorded live in my home. So you're going to probably hear echoes, you're going to hear dogs barking, you're going to hear everything else. But the guest of the hour happens to be a really special guest for us. And um, this gentleman is a writer, outdoorsman, forager, educator, um, and, and he's a big deal to a lot of folks here in the Pacific Northwest, even though he says nobody reads his stuff. So um, I am introducing Mr. Randy Bonner, uh, and, and I can't tell you how excited I am to have you. You're in my house. I've been buying STS magazines for years and then reading your articles, and you're here in person in my house, and, and you have awesome books, awesome stories, everything else. Super excited to have you here, and you know... Um, it's a real honor to have you on our podcast. So Randy, thank you so much for coming on. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah so, um, we're, we're going to kind of work through some audio things here. We don't edit or anything else. So we're kind of juggling back and forth and everything. So Randy, uh, with everything that you have that you got going on here, um, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know a lot about you, but um, just the fact that you're so accessible and everything else to all of us is a really, that, that's a big deal, especially in our fishing culture here in the Pacific Northwest and, and even in a more broad spectrum, you know, people that want to salmon fish, steelhead fish, even clear over into the Great Lakes, like the, the knowledge you bring forward and the studying that you do is a really big deal. So, um, but why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I write for Salmon Trout Steelheader and Northwest Sportsman Magazine, uh, a few other magazines. Uh, currently, I am working for Coil Outside. We do, this spring, we did outdoor school. Uh, for those who don't know, every sixth grader in the state of Oregon gets a week of outdoor school. So, uh, I'm kind of like a wilderness educator in that sense. Uh, currently, we're doing summer camps. We're transitioning from doing outdoor school programs to doing summer camps with kids whose parents have, you know, paid to send their kids to summer camp through a uh, Parks and Rec catalog. It's a little different than working with public school kids where, like, every kid in public school goes to camp or goes to a week of outdoor school. Um, and that's kind of what I got going on now. So Randy, dude, like just to echo what Brian said, I'm not from the Pacific Northwest, but Brian has spoken very highly of you. So I was, I was kind of checking out some of your articles and dude, you, you are a really fantastic writer and just thanks for coming on. Dude. So how did you get started fishing though? Like, how did Randy Bonner get started in this wild adventure? Well, um, I started fishing. I was old enough to stand and hold a rod, uh, probably about 18 months old. And, you know, my dad took me fishing for bluegill and bass and stuff. I grew up in Alabama, so I'm not originally from the Northwest, not a Northwest native. I moved here in 2006. Uh, but I've been fishing, hunting my whole life. My dad was a wild uh, whitetail guide 
in Alabama. So, you know, I've grown up around hunting and fishing in the outdoors. So it's something that I'm passionate about and been doing my whole life. Um, but yeah, uh, I've probably been writing about it since 2014. So, um, I just published my first book, the bead fishing Bible through Amato publications. They're the same publisher that puts out salmon trout, steelheader, great lakes, angler and fly fishing and tying journal. Uh, that was quite an endeavor. Took me about five or six years to put the book together. Um, and that has been a journey on its own for sure. So Alabama, and then you ended up in the PNW. How, how did that come about? If you don't mind me asking. I don't. Um, so I moved from Alabama to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, there I picked up glass art, glass blowing, and uh, was making pipes and stuff like that. And uh, <laughs> I had, you know, heard from everybody that Eugene was the place to be to learn from the best of the best. And, uh, you know, I traveled, I was basically shooting for Eugene was my like, destination i crash landed in corvallis and after spending five or six years in atlanta uh when i crash landed in corvallis i was like you know this is a really chill college town um i was probably 25 years old 24 i was like man this is a really chill college town and i just came from a place where you can't walk a block without somebody asking you for a cigarette or a dollar and after visiting Eugene, it's just kind of like, I was like, you know, Eugene's there and no offense to anybody in Eugene, if they're listening, but I was like, you know, Eugene's there and I can go visit at any time, but I just came from a place that's very busy and you know, there's a lot of street folks and Corvallis was a little more chill, relaxed, different kind of pace. And uh, I was like, you know, I can go to Eugene anytime I want. It's right there. And I'm just going to stay here for now. And it's been about 15 years, and I'm still there. So uh, it took me a while to kind of, like, get re-exposed to the outdoors and kind of recalibrate and understand my surroundings and get to know people who were into fishing and stuff like that. Uh, so there was a, a bit of a pause um, between living in Atlanta and moving to Corvallis where I was not as involved in the outdoors, but it's, it's been ingrained in me from a very young age. And, uh, and that's what I've come back to for sure. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> that's awesome. So let me get this straight. Just, <laughs> Okay, so you're you're hanging out in Atlanta, right? And you're and you're blowing glass. Like, okay, when I think about like Atlanta glass blowing, I'm thinking like, oh, this beautiful like Savannah, you know, art, you know, that type of thing. But you're blowing pipes. Like when people talk about glass blowing around here, that's what I think about. They're like, yeah, I'm a glass blower. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I know what you're blowing. You know, you're not you're not making ocean floats or things like this up here, and any you know. So you, you come out here as an artist, though. I mean, when you really break it down, you came out here as an artist, and you, but you reconnected with the outdoors. What, what I want to know is, because that's just so freaking cool, when did you get bit by the, the unicorn fever of the steelhead? I, I have to absolutely unequivocally unknow about that. Well, uh, I can tell you that, uh, my first steelhead, uh, I was, I had a friend who was into fishing and I was like, Oh man, I miss fishing so much. Like, can you show me around? Can you take me some places, whatever? And it was summertime because, you know, when you're a fish or when you want to be a fisherman, excuse me, and you don't know your way around the Northwest, uh, 
you know, it takes a little while to calibrate to the weather patterns of the Pacific Northwest. And in the summertime, that's when I started thinking about fishing. And a lot of the people that I talk to now that, you know, that don't fish a whole lot and they're interested in fishing and they want to try fishing or whatever, they always reach me in the summer. And that's not really like, I mean, I don't really think about fishing a whole lot in the summer. But at the time, I got an invite to go fishing, and we went down to the Santa Am River, and uh, I didn't have a whole lot of equipment. I had a trout rod, and I had some blue fox spinners, and uh, here I am. I had dreadlocks down to my ass at the time, and I didn't have waders. I had shorts, and I had tennis shoes, and I waded about crotch deep into the river, and, you know... Any more than that is a little too cold, if you know what I'm saying. And I waited about, you know, just over my knees and cast as far as I could. And I hooked something that made the drag scream like I had never heard. And uh, it was not a trout. I mean, I guess it was a trout. Technically, it was a trout that had been to the ocean. But, uh, yeah, I caught my first summer steelhead on a blue fox spinner. Um just looking like an idiot that had no idea what he was doing. Cause that's exactly what I was. And, uh, and I was like, man, I want to do this all the time. Um, so, you know, that got me back into it. Um, and you know, ironically, uh, as a glass blower, uh, I moved here to learn from the best of the best in Eugene. You know, I'd heard, about all the great artists that were here and I moved here to learn from them and I learned from a lot of the greatest people and uh you know like Bob Smog Bob Snodgrass down in Eugene the godfather of glass I learned from him I learned from a few others that were major artists in the industry and uh and after a few years I got a job at Oregon State in the craft center teaching glass blowing and I did that for about three years. Um, and the only reason I'm mentioning this is that I've, I've come full circle now. And now I'm doing this wilderness, wilderness educator thing. So, you know, I think that like somewhere along the line, I, I really enjoy teaching a lot. And that, that is something that's come full circle. Uh, you know, people ask me a lot about like, well, well, do you blow glass anymore? How come you don't blow glass anymore? And, uh, you know, I think I miss the teaching aspect of it as much as I miss the art. So I'm doing a lot of teaching now, teaching kids, teaching outdoor school, teaching summer camps. And, uh, you know, I do fishing camps and teach kids how to fish. And, and that's a blast. So, you know, um, <clears throat> We, we were just talking, you know, you, you, you got over here, you just got done teaching a class today. And, and that's the, the, the cool part of it was, was this like, all right, we're going to unwind first before we even get into doing this. And I mean, your classes are busy, but we were talking about what, you know, we were just having a discussion about gear, like no more than 30 minutes before we, you know, popped in here and we were talking. And, and the cool part is, is that you got these kids set up with like the classic basic setup, Zebco 33s and bait. You know, I mean, you set it flat out right there. You know, everybody's like, oh, are you teaching them to fly fish or tie flies or blah, 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 you know, all this stuff back and forth. And, and you're teaching them with the very basic rudimentary stuff. But to hear you say that you, you've come full circle in that aspect, I mean, did did you ever see yourself 15 years ago when you showed up here as a glass blower to be educating so many different people in regards to um you know the fishing and the outdoors and the foraging and all that kind of stuff no i can't say that i saw that coming honestly uh you know I don't know that I was probably the best student to be completely honest with you. And I've probably come full circle with quite a bit of karma and that's that aspect as well. But, uh, you know, um, 
it definitely has given me like kind of an opportunity to connect with the community and, you know, pass along some of my skills to other people. Uh, for those that have listened or listening, Brian was a, a student in my foraging class. So it was cool. Cause you know, I've been following him on social media and following the working class fishing podcast on social media. And, uh, it was interesting to have someone come and show up in one of my foraging classes and share some of my knowledge in there. So, you know, I enjoy working with kids, enjoy working with adults. Um, I do my best not to be a know-it-all, but, uh, you know, if, if anybody is interested in picking up my book, uh, I, I can tell you from my experiences so far in the first six months or so of having my book out, that uh, I can tell who hasn't read it when they start giving me a hard time about it. And it's kind of funny because I've, I've put certain things in there. Like I said, it's called the bead fishing Bible. And the first thing that I ask people is like, did you read the introduction? And the introduction is kind of designed to be like, uh, I am not a bead fishing God. Like, a lot of this stuff is stuff that I've learned from other people and, you know, through my writing skills that I've developed, I've just figured out ways to like explain it to people in my own terms. And, you know, a lot of this information is not something that I came up with or something that I take claim to. I'm just, you know, what I say in the introduction is that I am, I am not a bead God, but I am a prophet. And I am spreading the gospel of beads and how to fish them. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the book is a little bit uh, hippy-dippy. Um, I have a lot of philosophical quotes and references in there and uh, talk about fishing as a religion. Um, and try to make it a little more wholesome than just a boring how-to book. Dude, so I've got, I've got a couple questions. All right, so do you, do you or have you hunted squirrel before? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I actually... Uh, during the the corona quarantine initial quarantine period uh i challenged another fishing industry celebrity colleague of mine ashley nicole lewis to a wild game cook-off and uh the rules of the cook-off were that you can only use what you have in your house you can't go to the grocery store um you can only use what you've got laying around. And uh, and I cooked squirrel, and I had three wild game chefs that uh, I got to volunteer to be judges, and I beat her by one point on the point system scale that I don't even recall how it worked, but it was a very <laughs> close competition. Um, but I took pride in taking her down by cooking squirrel. <laughs> so th this leads to my next question what is your preferred method for cleaning squirrel and I, i'm only asking this because this is fresh because me and my dad were talking about this last week did you kill a squirrel today or something no 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 not 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 today but <laughs> last week we was we was talking about the best way to go about it so this might be something we talk about offline but dude um so Remove the feet. Yeah, dude. That, that, that remove was the kidding. feet, remove the head, and then start – or don't remove the head. Remove the feet, make an incision behind the head, and then reach your fingers in the skin and start peeling. And, uh, you know, if you have the feet on, you're going to peel the hide back, and what you're going to find is that you peel the hide all the way off, and then you can't get it off their feet. So if you get some garden shears, that's a good way to remove the feet is with garden shears. 
So, um, you know, there's a ton of, uh, YouTube how to videos, which is a lot of stuff that I learned to clean or, you know, process animals have just come from YouTube and I've got a few, uh, YouTube videos of my own. And I don't honestly, like I don't do YouTube to try and get famous. Uh, but I have some YouTube videos specifically for friends who ask me questions like you just asked me and I'm like, hang on a second, I'll send you a link. <laughs> so then like, like I have a video of me removing an elk tongue from an elk head. And, uh, you know, if I have friends who are like, Hey, I want to make lingua like venison lingua or lingua with elk, you know, how do you get the tongue out? And I'm like, well, don't just cut it straight out of the jaw because I did that the first time, and that's the wrong way to do it. You miss a majority of the meat that way. Um, and I'll just send them the link and be like, look, this is how you do it. And then, I don't know, I think there's something special about, like, having a video of me doing it, and I get to instruct, like, this is me talking, you know, this is how I do it, and I'm using my own voice and doing my own method or whatever and sharing that with a friend who knows me. Uh, it's, I think it's a lot like if you read a book and you know the author personally and you can hear that author's voice when you read the words on the page, uh, I think it's kind of the same thing when you look at a video of a how-to and you know that person like, oh, well, you know, this is the person I want. I mean, there's a million how-to videos out there for everything, but if it's somebody that you know explaining how to do something and they're not in the same room, it's just, I think it's a little easier to relate to. I, dude, I agree. I think it's awesome. So the, the B Bible, I haven't read it. This is my first time, uh, not my first time hearing about it because I'm pretty sure Brian's got your book because he was kind of like fan. He was fanboy and he's like, dude, I'm going to <laughs> sign my fucking book. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, uh, it is, it, is it all inclusive for people like myself that haven't read it? Is it inclusive for all forms of angling, if you will, for, is it, does it talk about pegging bees for fly guys and not only dudes running like, bobber dog bobber dog and setups and stuff like that for beads is it yeah i mean is it truly like the bible like is this a must for every angler there is a specific chapter on fly fishing and it's broken down into two parts uh and it's funny because uh brian and i were actually just talking before we got on here about like our relating to fly fishing like our personal experience with fly fishing is like does i mean you know correct me if i'm wrong here but like we're not fly guys um but we do fly fish and the occasions that we fly fish are one where it's the only way you're allowed to fish or two it's the most likely way to catch a fish i mean if there's trout hitting dries and you're throwing a rooster tail and they're ignoring it or they're scared by it and but they're hitting fish or the flies on the surface. The only way you're going to catch those fish is with a fly rod. You're not going to be able to cast a fly, a dry fly with a bait caster. It's just impossible. So, um, that's kind of how I relate to fly fishing. And I wrote a chapter on like be, or excuse me, the fly fishing chapter is broken down into two sections. And the section that I wrote is on, uh, like beginner basics. And then there is a more advanced version that was written by Leo Paul Johnson, who is a guide that I've worked with, uh, up in Yakutat, Alaska, Glacier Bear Lodge. Um, and he's kind of the, the fly guide up there at that lodge. Most of the fly clients, uh, go through him. So I had him, Right. And he actually has a, a bead company. He does his own bead um, that he sells. So I had him write the more advanced uh, portion of that book. It was really an article that he had already written before. And I was like, dude, this is like kind of way over my head, but also like just super advanced to like if a beginner wanted to take the next step to go to the next level to fly fish a bead this is the article for them to read. So I got his permission to 
to publish that as the advanced section of the fly fishing chapter. And I wrote the beginner section uh, with the beginner knowledge that I have and my beginner experience. I mean, I have caught steelhead with a bead on a fly rod, but you know, the way that I do it might not be the most advanced way. It might be the uh, Zebco 33 version of it, but for someone who's just trying to like get their foot in the door, get their feet wet and catch a steelhead on a fly rod, it might be easier for them to relate to the beginner guide. And if they are already fly fishermen who are trying to hone their, their big game and move to the next level, all the information in the book could be relevant to them, but that more advanced section of the fly fishing chapter might be more relevant to them. So <clears throat> I'll pop this earphone off here really quick. I, I went through in depth through that section and I have a bead run right around the corner here. When, <laughs> when we get the winners coming in um, up until that point, basically I had no idea that I could combine in, in that basic setup, that thingamabobber with the split shot with the light gauge hook and the bead and the, <clears throat> and, and I didn't use a peg. Uh, I had actually talked to uh, Scott from Dylan rush outfitters, uh, which you, you know, Scott, I talked to him. He's like, Hey, don't use a T peg. Do not use a T peg when you're fly fishing, go with the, you know, the stopper knot. So I, I unanodded around that by far the most effective drift I've ever had with a bead hands down. And I didn't know that until I had that info out of that book, because in all honesty, really what you're working with when you're, when you're talking to people fly fishing is you're throwing nuke eggs, um, hairball leeches, dirty hose intruders, and, and, and that's like what their world revolves around. I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. We know that this trout species will eat this egg. We know it for a fact, because when we throw a wad of eggs in the river, we catch them. Like you said, we're going to use what works. And so we know that a wad of eggs will work. Shrimp will work. Um, anything that mimics a, a lamprey in this area anyways, works because it mimics that earthworms, bugs, everything else. That was by far the best drift presentation I've had. <clears throat> So I guess, I guess my, my biggest thing is, is like when I read through that book and, and yes, I've read the book and the reason why I don't give you any crap over the book, number one, I think it's a, a very valuable resource because we've oftentimes, I think I, I mentioned to you, I was like, Hey, this is on par with, you know, the general's book, you know, uh, Bill Herzog. And you were like, dude, that's insane, but it, it's true. Your research into what works on that book is just so much further and so much way beyond because that's stuff that people don't necessarily tell you unless you go out with a guide and you start really examining and inspecting what they're doing. Um, my question in regards to the book, because I mean, centrally, you will be known for that book forever. I, I don't care what you say. <laughs> people are going to know you for that book forever because it's so comprehensive with bead fishing, whether you're throwing hard beads, soft beads, spawn sacks, fly fishing, you know, bobber dogging, drift fishing, whatever. People are going to know you for that book forever around here. What inspired you to go that scientific with that book without giving the book away to anybody that hasn't read it? What really uh, inspired you to do that? Well, uh, the first thought about a book at all, uh, I was fishing on a coastal creek with uh, my buddy Jacob Michalite, and we were trying to figure out, I think it was the cone zone bead, uh, the cone zone takes down, takedowns, um, like the little spiky bead. And the whole, like, I got kind of aggravated because at the time I was fishing all hard beads and a lot of the different hard beads had a different hole size drilled into them. And at the time I was only pegging everything with silicone pegs from trout beads. And uh, 
every once in a while I'd get a different bead that had a different hole size and maybe the silicone peg wouldn't fit into it or maybe it would just go right through it because it was too big. And I was essentially basing my purchases on will it fit this peg? And there were some things that I was like, man, this looks really cool or it's a really cool color or this is really unique. I'd like to try it, but I don't know how to peg it. And, you know, I learned uh, the peg knot method like you were talking about from Ty Wyatt. And uh, I just personally, you know, and it's just, you know, different strokes for different folks, but I didn't like the idea of tying a knot on my line with another piece of line or I just couldn't execute it well at the time. And, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember what it was that Jake showed me that day while we were on that Creek, but he showed me another way to fish it and another way to peg it and keep it in place. And I was like, man, there's just so many ways to fish a bead. Like you could write a book on it. And he was like, well, you're the writer. And that was when I was like, okay, I'm gonna start taking notes. And at the time, uh, being our tackle, the beads that they were putting out, the soft beads that they were putting out came packaged with a piece of silicone tubing. And you're supposed to cut a piece of the silicone tubing and string that on your line and then string your bead over the silicone tubing. Well, I mean, there was a bunch of different ways that you could, you know, stop the silicone tubing. Uh, I wouldn't really take a silicone peg. At the time I was using the nylon bobber stops because the rubber bobber stops, if you slid it onto rubber bobber stop, you could just see the rubber bobber stop underneath the bead, and I just didn't like the visual noise of that. So I was putting the the nylon bobber stops, tying them on, cutting the edges off, and sliding the, the uh, silicone tubing over the bobber stop so it wouldn't slide, and then I was putting a drop of super glue on the silicone and then sliding the bead on top of that so that it wouldn't come off. And when I think about that now, I'm like, man, that's a lot of work. That was so dumb. I would never do that today. Uh, but then they came out with a T-stop and that just like changed a lot. That was one of the greatest inventions I think in fishing was that little T-stop, um, which you just said that don't fish it that way. But that's the whole point is like, there's so many different ways to do it. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to write a book, like, there's a lot of material here and I just started taking notes and, you know, uh, being a writer, I got to fish with a lot of different guides and see things done a lot of different ways and take notes. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, that's kind of started. And it's funny, we were just talking about the fly thing and you were talking about fishing the DRO soft plastic on a fly rod, right? Mm -hmm. And that was another thing I talked about in the fly chapter is like, is a bee to fly at all? Like, you know, this is like this kind of existential crisis of the bead. Like a lot of fly anglers kind of like look down their nose at beads. But the funny thing is you can go to any fly shop right now, anywhere in Northwest. And there's a bead rack with beads, but you know what you won't find in those fly shops, a soft plastic bead. So it's it's funny to me that like these fly shops will cross the line and like you know step over the line and be like okay it's acceptable beads work we know it like it's it's better than a what's the little puffball thing what do they call it egg. the, yeah just eggs <laughs> the egg pattern fly I forget what the term for it is but the egg pattern fly the the yarn yarny. It's like a yarny, but anyway, um, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, that is acceptable because you tie it on a hook and it's fabric, right? And then we can move to the realm of a round soft or hard plastic bead. All of a sudden, like, well, you know, I mean, we're not really tying that on a hook, but it's acceptable. It catches lots of fish. There's no denying it. Let's just put them on our racks. They sell. Um, so all the fly shops now carry hard plastic beads and they have for years, but none of them, I have not been into a fly shop where I've seen a soft plastic bead and you're telling me that you fish soft plastic on a fly rod and you're not the first, but I'm kind of at a point now where I'm like, 
when are the fly shops going to start carrying soft plastics? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that just goes to show you like there's more than one way to fish a bead and there's so many ways to fish a bead that I just decided that, you know, okay, my buddy's right. I'm the writer. There's so many ways to do this. I've made a point that somebody could write a book on this. I should just be that somebody. So that was kind of the, the aha moment. And that was probably well over six years ago. So. Well, dude, I know I'm going to start fishing beads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start nymphing beads, dude. I, 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 I don't, I, dude, I'm, I'm a, I'm a professional fly tire and I don't draw the line anywhere. Like <laughs> If, if you can cast it on the fly rod, it's a fly. <laughs> right. I, if I can cast this. Uh, if you can put a propeller blade that's metal in front of a woolly bugger and fish it like it's a spinner, you know, I, I think all bets are off. Everything's on the table. You can, <laughs> you can fish a soft plastic bead on a fly rod. You don't have to oh, be ashamed. Ab absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it I, works. I know, I know tons of dudes that fish trout magnets and, and, and then the other guys on the river are like, oh, no, you can't you can't fish a trout magnet under a fly. Well, this this dude's over here wearing them out on this chartreuse uh, <laughs> trout magnet. So maybe you should just suck it up and, <laughs> and you can go ask him for one. You, you know, I bet he because he's, I just saw this box. Dude's had, dude has like 200 trout magnets of every color. Like, I'm sure he'll give you one so you can catch a trout and just shut up. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of fly guys that have asked for a bead at some point in their life and had to wrestle with that. I hear I'll go, I'll go ahead and uh, hit you with the next question here. Of course, everybody's going to hear the dogs go ballistic because mama's home. Okay. <laughs> so when that, when that happens, that's, that's just kind of a part of the deal. So, um, one of the biggest things that, that um, a lot of people have this conception of in, in that whole bead fishing kind of uh, 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 deal, soft plastics, everything else, and we see it here in Oregon in our regulations, they consider soft plastics to be a bait, quote unquote. And, and one of the biggest things with that whole bait notion of everything is, is that um, I just don't it's not the same. It's not a worm. It's not a shrimp. It's not a wad of eggs. It's not a, a anchovy or a herring or something else. It is a soft plastic. Now you cross the Columbia river to the North and you go to Washington. It's not considered a bait, but don't put any scent on because that would be considered a bait. And I, and I can buy into the whole notion of the bait part a lot more uh, with the scent than I can the soft plastic, but I, I think you're onto something as far as those beads go and everything else. I really do. Because one part of that whole deal is, is that the, um, the beads are, are just kind of a part of that whole thing, you know? So yeah, everybody gets to hear the loud little dog. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, as far as everything else goes, um, that's, I don't know. What, what's your thoughts on a soft plastic versus a, a hard bait versus a soft bait? Well, just going back to what you were saying about soft plastics being bait, though, uh, you know, there is kind of a fine line, like some people define, and by some people, I mean some regulations define uh, scented soft plastics as bait. But soft plastics are okay. But scented soft plastics are bait. Um, and it's kind of funny to me because even an unscented soft plastic bait that doesn't have a, you know, a scent additive to it, uh, all soft plastics, you know, have some type of oil that helps them from sticking inside the mold. And I'm not unconvinced that uh fish like that worm oil um and i understand the concern is that uh fish will swallow a soft plastic and 
get a hook too deep that will, uh, you know, injure or harm the fish in a catch and release fishery. And, you know, and I've seen it like, uh, I've got an article coming out in the, uh, I don't know what issue it is, but it's, uh, Alaska sporting journal. My next article that I have in Alaska sporting journal talks about, uh, some of the spoon tactics that I was doing for coho up in Alaska when I was guiding up there last year. And when you add soft plastics onto a spoon, if you, let me, let me back up. When you fish a spoon naked, just metal, I've watched coho just engulf it and spit it instantly. Like, oh, that tastes bad. Tastes like metal. I don't want it in my mouth. It was flashy. I thought I wanted it. I don't want it. But when you add a soft plastic on the hook, it not only like changes the action of the lure and like gets more strikes and adds contrast and UV and all kinds of different things that make it more effective. But on more than one occasion, there were multiple fish that like we're reeling to the boat and I can see them bleeding out and like just blood pumping out of the gills. And we landed all those fish and the intention was to kill them anyway. So it wasn't like, a big deal, but it did kind of make me think twice about like, huh, soft plastics definitely make a difference on, you know, how long they, not only how long they hold on to a bait, but like whether or not they're going to engulf it. And, uh, another issue that has kind of arisen since my book has been out that, you know, probably would have happened anyway, whether without my book, but, uh, I see a lot of people who are concerned about soft plastics, hard plastics, just plastics in general, um, beads, uh, especially large beads, um, their presence in the river and, uh, you know, the possibility that a fish might swallow a bead and then not be able to pass it and what might happen to that fish. Um, you know, I kind of have a little more realist approach where, you know, I kind of like how many humans have swallowed a plastic army man and found out about it when they got an x-ray when they were 46 years old uh, and they're just fine. Uh, you know, I don't want to downplay it too much, but, uh, you know, there's definitely, there's some thin lines when it comes to bait soft plastics, plastics in general, uh, fishing with lures that are that effective, uh, fishing with a big giant ball that maybe a fish can't pass. I mean, you know, I mean, what happens when a fish tears a worm off a hook and it's floating down the river? Like that's, I mean, we've probably all seen a bass. that has got a ribbon tail worm sticking out of its butthole or something, you know? Um, so, I don't know. I don't want to say those people's concerns aren't valid. I don't know like how much of a real effect it has on anything like realistically, you know, angler impacts are pretty minimal on the grand spectrum of everything else that fish have stacked up against their survival. But, uh, it's definitely been a thing that I've seen come up a lot more in the past year or like some people are just vehemently opposed to bead fishing because, they're scared that like beads in the river are going to wipe out the runs or something. I don't know. Yeah. But, but you know, the dude that hangs up his, his triple fly rig, like every other drift because he can't manage his own line. I've dude, I've, I've, I've literally seen trout stomachs that have flies and curly toe grubs and all this stuff in their bellies. And it's like, do you, let, let's let's be realistic here and it's it's not just it's not just a bead problem it's a it's an angler deal <laughs> it's, it's like if it's you, part if of fishing know, in my opinion it, it, it is dude and if you care that much about it then don't fish amen like, like be be a steward of the sport and your environment but if you're that upset about harming a fish or something inadvertently happening, then don't fish. Like you're wasting your time and you're wasting your breath. 
I hope you guys get some letters and emails about this. Because <laughs> I don't want any of them. <laughs> you know, uh, to be honest with you, Randy, I, you know, people can send all the letters and emails they want, and I'm going to still tell them to shove it. You know why? Because like John just said, John just said that there's always going to be somebody out there that is drifting, you know, a three fly rig with tag lines, everything else. You're a nymphor, right? Mr. I am the steward of the environment. We've, we've talked about the Patagoochee. All right. You and I have had conversations early in the morning about, you know, that, that whole culture, um, <clears throat> the, the steward of the environment, leaving your mono in the river, uh, all this kind of stuff. It happens, right? I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying I've, I've snagged and lost thousands of dollars worth of gear trying to figure out how to catch these things, right? Everybody has. But um, that whole argument of like, oh, well, you're leaving plastic. Well, you're leaving steel and tungsten and lead and everything else in the river too. We're all kind of guilty of it because it's our playground. So if we all accept it as, as what it is, we try to do the best we can, you know? Yeah, as a personal rule, I do my best to try and leave the river as a personal rule, I try to do my best to leave the river with uh, take more gear out of it than I left in it. Uh, you know, I pick up stuff off the bank. Uh, I'm a total scavenger. I have a thing that I do every year. I fill my pockets with as much lead as I can possibly find on the bank. And uh, I just put it in my pocket and then I have like a little bowl on my coffee table when I get home and I empty my pockets and I put all the lead in the bowl. And then uh, at the end of the season, I put all that lid in a flat rate box and I ship it to Sam Wordinger from Dinger Jigs and he melts all the lead down and I have him make my jig heads I do for twitching jigs. And, you know, and then those eventually probably get sent back into the river one way or another. But the whole point is that like, while I'm out there, I do my best to like pick up what I can and, you know, leave the place better than I found it because I know that I'm contributing, you know, waste and garbage and everything else while I'm out there. So it just helps me sleep at night knowing that like, okay, well, you know, I lost six or eight rigs today, but I also picked up like a quarter pound of lead and found a few swivels and somebody dumped the box of bobber stop beads and decided they were too small to pick up. And I took the time to pick them all up and, you know, um, yeah, I, I do the best to like explain that to the kids that I teach in camp, you know, like pick up your trash before we leave this spot. And any kid who's like, well, that wasn't mine. I was like, I don't care. It's trash. Pick it up anyway. Like, it doesn't matter if it's yours. It's still there. You have a pocket, put it in your pocket, get it to a garbage can. Let's send it at least to a landfill. So it's not going down the river. Absolutely. Absolutely, dude. And, and dude, I, I appreciate a lot what you're doing. Like everything you're doing is badass, dude. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, Randy, I'm going to, you know, we're kind of coming up on the hour here, of course. And um, I just want to. So if. If. I can ask real quick, and, and maybe I should have asked this earlier, what got you started writing about the outdoors? I mean, just in plain and simple terms, what got you started writing about the outdoors? Well, I don't want to make it too long of a story, but uh, I, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, and I actually wrote an article for a weekly paper, an alternative weekly paper about glass pipes and the glass pipe industry and a local glass pipe culture. And, uh, got super creative with it and was, I, I really enjoyed writing that article. And I, I wrote a few more articles for that weekly paper until, uh, they dissolved and everybody who kind of led the paper, you know, it's a college town, people graduate, they move away or, you know, things just happened and uh it was a really 
valuable resource that I read every week. And I was pretty sad that the paper went away, not only because I didn't have a paper to contribute to, but I didn't have a paper to read. And uh, some other friends of mine had started like kind of a little zine sort of deal. And, you know, we tried to turn it into a weekly and uh, we ran our own alternative weekly, which uh, we had for about a year. And there was another publisher who just had a lot more experience, a lot more funding, a lot more advertisers. And they just came on the scene and decided, hey, there's a market here. We can squeeze these, you know, young people out. who don't know what they're doing real easy. So we're going to do our own weekly paper. So uh, I, we ended up competing and it was like this bloodthirsty cutthroat competition, you know, business uh, competition between the other business, the other weekly. And, uh, I ended up throwing everything I had in my savings into our business and going all the way to the end with debt for advertisers that we couldn't deliver on. And, uh, I put all my eggs in one basket and all my chips on the table and I told the guy who was running the competing business, I was like, well, you know, we're, we're stepping things up. We're upgrading our printing and, you know, uh, we can either compete each other into the ground um, or, or uh, you could buy us out and we'll give you all our resources. We'll give you uh, contacts for all our advertisers. We'll give you all of our uh, drop off points for the publication. We'll get, you know, we got spreadsheets and all this information and, uh, you know, and, and I could work for you. So you could buy us out and give me a job or we could just compete each other into the ground, your choice. And I didn't even have the money to print the next week. And I got him and, uh, and he, he bought our business. He absorbed our thousands of dollars in debt. We had to advertisers, um, you know, gave us a lump sum, gave me a job. Uh, and I worked for him for three years, but I was under a non-compete clause, which I'll probably never do again the rest of my life. Um, cause it cost me a lot of other writing opportunities. And, uh, I got kind of soured by the experience working for him cause we already were like arch enemies. And then I worked for him for three years and I was not allowed legally to work for anyone else doing any kind of journalism of any kind. And, uh, during that time, I mean, I was writing about all kind of like political stuff and people would come up to me in the grocery store and like have an opinion about something. And I'm like, I have an email address. I'm grocery shopping. What do you want? Like write a letter to the editor. I'm trying to get eggs and milk and get out of here. Uh, so at some point I was like, I got tired of that. And I was like, well, I'll write about the outdoors. I like the outdoors. I enjoy the outdoors. This is something mellow and I can write and I don't have to piss people off. People don't get confrontational with me when I'm out in public for no reason. Um, and, and that kind of worked. People do still get confrontation with me in public about writing about the outdoors, but at least I enjoy it more. Um, and that's kind of been the path that I've been on writing about outdoor stuff since then. And, uh, you know, a lot of my stuff is educational how to, um, and I just try to make it a little more interesting to read, you know, how-to instructional stuff can be really boring and I like reading that kind of stuff and seeing pe people's personality shine through it. So, Well, uh, you know, the, what a, what a, what a story, like an overarching story of like so many different things that came together in that. Like I, I would have thought like, my perception was, was like, yeah, you know, I took writing in college and, you know, I, I just decided I really liked writing, you know, uh, about the outdoors. 
really never known that you were writing for like a alternative magazine and that transition from writing for that alternative magazine to writing for, you know, three or four of the biggest outdoor publications, um, in the United States. I mean, that, that's the, like a big difference in, in your writing talent was really, I mean, impressive. That's why it's like, how'd you get going with this? <laughs> it, it, it always makes me wonder, like, how, how do people get going with this kind of thing? But that, that is just super cool. Yeah. I mean, if, if anyone that's listening to this would have any interest in writing, uh, you know, I would just tell them to just do it. Uh, and I do have people every once in a while that ask like, how do I get into writing or how did you get into writing or whatever? And, you know, uh, and a lot of them are, are college kids or college educated people, which to be completely honest, I am not, I went to college twice and I did not finish, um, not two days, but like two attempts, <laughs> two different colleges. Um, but you know, people's like, Oh, I got this idea for something. I'm like, okay, well get a pen and paper and write it down or start striking some keys and make it happen. Uh, you know, write it out, look at it. If you don't like it, tinker with it, fix it, try not to tinker with it too much. Cause you'll break it again. Um, and, and just do it and send it in. And if somebody doesn't like it, ask them why, um, you can play with it, tinker with it, or you can tell them, you know what? I like it the way it is. Send it to somebody else. Maybe they'll like it. Uh, so, you know, I, and, and I've done that a lot myself where like I'll send some, a particular publication, an article, and they're like, well, it just didn't really like, you know, we got lots of material and that kind of stuff, you know, whatever. Like, Fine. I'll send it to somebody else and I'll send it to somebody else and then it gets published. So, you know, uh, as far as I, as how I got into it, you know, uh, I had an idea. I wrote about something that I was passionate about and I enjoyed and I sent it in and they printed it. And, uh, you know, yeah, just write it. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, dude, on just really and honestly, thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening to come talk to us, man. It's, this has been, this has been really rad, dude. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you guys, uh, for what y'all are doing, I hear so many people talk about like, Oh, we should do a podcast. We should do a podcast. You know what? We should do a podcast on this. We should do a podcast on that. You know what they don't do a podcast. <laughs> they just talk about doing it and you guys are doing it. So, you know, I admire that. Well, dude, we appreciate that. Like, that means a lot. There's, there's a lot of times we're like, man, why are we, why are we doing this? And then, you know, the next week we get an email or a message or something from somebody like, hey, I really liked this episode. Or, hey, we tried that technique. Or, hey, that was one of my friends that came on your, on your show. And it's like, well, that makes it all worth it. So, Randy, I, I really appreciate it. I know Brian does as well, man. All right, and cheers to the doers. <laughs> yeah, Randy, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's awesome having you a guest at my home, uh, you know, sharing your experiences, sharing your knowledge, being so accessible. Uh, you know, there again, I've talked about reaching out to a lot of different people in outdoor media and you just kind of like, meh. You know, I think, I think we were going to talk about one other story, but we're kind of been up on an hour. It's fine. We were going to talk about your incident up there at the Tacoma fishing show, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, anyways. Um, uh, but I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, being here, interviewing, telling us a little bit about yourself and, and, you know, just being so accessible. It's really cool. And, and the fact that you're so open to educating all of us, especially those of us that are into steelhead fishing, salmon fishing, the nuances of being on a boat, trying to net a fish, you know, being a good net man, one of your articles. There, there's just so many different things that you talk about with all of your writing. 
that really mean a lot to the people that actually read it and, and get a lot out of it. It's, it's just a really cool thing. And, you know, um, really happy to have you on. Do you want to hear the Tacoma story? You better tell it. Okay. So, um, anyway, when Brian asked me to come on, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do a podcast. I mean, you know, it's kind of like anytime I write something, I just tell myself, nobody's going to read this anyway. So I figure if I do a podcast, nobody's going to listen to it. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I think it's funny, like being well known or whatever. Like, uh, I went up, I fished with, uh, Justin Wolf from anglers West. It's a really popular television show. Um, and I fished with him and Tony Amato from Amato publications. And I saw, Justin at the Tacoma Fish Expo about a week or so ago and I walked up to him and I only you know met him once or twice and I walked up to him I said hey man I haven't seen you since we fished the Clackamas with Tony Amato and he's like what was your name again and I'm like oh man like I fished with this I wanted to promote my book and fish with this guy doesn't even remember who I am oh my god uh, I'm Randy Bonner. I'm not even going to say anything about my book. I'm just like, oh, we fished together. Just don't worry about it. No big deal. You fish with lots of people. 20 plus years of television. No big deal. And then my friend uh, Misty walks up and uh, Misty caught her first steelhead a little over a year ago. Um, but shares a lot of memes on social media and is kind of a an online comedian of sorts. And uh, right after uh, my conversation with Justin, where he didn't recognize me after fishing with me six weeks previously, um, Misty walks up and he goes, are, are you Misty Hawk? He recognized her from sharing memes on Facebook. But he didn't remember me from fishing with him and filming for his television show. And I told her after that, I was like, okay, this is, this is my level of fame right here. Like a Facebook meme share has more fame than I do. So it was, it was a kind of a humbling, but hilarious, uh, interaction. I mean, to, to be fair, Misty shares some really funny stuff. <laughs> oh, there's some fire-ass memes for sure. And I'll, I'll, she can make you laugh and cry in about two or three clicks. So I hope to one day be as famous as Misty Hawk. <laughs> We're going to have to get Misty on here. <laughs> And, and talk about i think that's style. the best line <laughs> i think that's the best line i've ever heard you should absolutely have misty hawk here on your podcast that would be an interesting guest i would listen to that one <laughs> well uh, uh i'll make sure to tag her uh because i uh, you know we just sent her some stickers i was like hey I need your address. Nothing weird. I'm sending you stickers. <laughs> She's like, Oh, okay. LOL. <laughs> As she sends me your address. So I sent her some stickers. I'm waiting to see those on, on the back end of everything. Well, if you tell her that she was mentioning this podcast, she's going to list have to listen to the whole damn thing in order to hear her name. So that's great. <laughs> All oh, right. <laughs> So, um, we're, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, but before we wrap it up, Randy, for all of the listeners out there that are listening to this, that don't know you right now, what is the best way to get a hold of you? Um, I mean, you know, I'm on social media, Facebook and Instagram, uh, Randall J Bonner, uh, you can send me a message on there. You can, uh, my email is rain or shine Randall with two L's 
at Gmail. You can send me an email. Uh, if you're looking for my book, it is on the Amato Publications website. Uh, it's also available at Fisherman's Marine and Powell Books and a bunch of other places that I don't have a list of, but the book is out there. If you can't find it, let me know where it needs to be. Well, Randy, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to close this out here, but once again, thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast coming over here. I'm happy to share my house with you, give you a place here to, to crash while you're doing your work up here. Um, just really happy that you decided to come on here and, and do this podcast. And yes, we do do this for real, you know, uh, and, uh, we we're not the biggest thing in the world, but man, you make us feel like the biggest thing in the world. So thank you again so much for Thanks for having me on and hope to be back. Well, Randy, you're going to have to come back. I mean, I don't, <laughs> you're going to have to come back at some point and share some more stories with us, but um, everyone just thanks for listening and Randy, thanks for coming on and Brian, you got anything? Well, uh, there again, uh, to everybody that out there that's listening, thank you so much. Our first like in-person live interview, uh, lucky enough to have Randy here with us tonight. Uh, if you want to know more about our podcast or Randy or anybody else, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and the Go Wild app. And we are under the same listing as working class fishing or working class fishing podcast. We pop up everywhere. We are also uh, on Spotify, Google podcast, Apple podcast, podcast addict, uh, and anywhere else where you'd like to listen to podcasts. You can even listen to us through your browsers. So make sure uh, if you have any questions and queries, or you want to be a guest on the podcast that you email us at workingclassfish at gmail.com. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Hope everybody has a wonderful day and get out there and get on the fish. See you, everyone. Thanks, guys.